Now, some of my guests have a bunch of intersections and some not so much. Uh, Salim Hanif seems to be more among the former group uh, that just makes him a, pretty much an average Torontonian. Uh, I met Salim in July in Las Vegas, uh, where we both attended the Association of Boxing Commission's annual convention, where we geeked out for about five days along with everybody else who was heavily involved in the regu- regulatory side of combat sports. Uh, we're going to talk boxing, mixed martial arts, mental health, men's style, um, Canadiana, and probably a whole lot more on today's episode. Salim Hanif, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Andrew. I was uh, pleasantly surprised when you asked me to come on, so happy to share my uh, my journey in life so far, if it's helpful to anyone out there. And you didn't realize how interesting you are? <laughs> it's funny because uh, when I was a little kid, probably around eight, I remembered really trying to aspire to a life where I did really interesting things, and um, I think it was very validating when you reached out because of the intention of your podcast, uh, so I appreciate it. Yeah, hey, so um, most Americans don't know, but Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving on the same day that we in the U.S. celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, how was your Canadian Thanksgiving? Uh, I'm not a huge Thanksgiving guy. I'm, uh, really, every day is kind of a Thanksgiving for me, brother. Um, you know, just being grateful and thankful for who I have in my life and what I have around me is, is kind of like a daily occurrence, but uh, it doesn't hurt to have that, uh, that day off. You know, it's funny because I know that people, um, you know, a lot of people, my wife, who is also Canadian, actually, um, people who generally tend to think progressively sometimes question the U.S. Uh, Thanksgiving because of the story of how the, the pilgrims sat down with the indigenous people and had this nice meal and um, and then, you know, all the bad things that happened that the Europeans did afterwards. But at the end of the day, uh, I think, we, like you said, you can always celebrate just things to be thank you without that little part of the story you can always celebrate that you have things to be thankful for and um i i think that's a pretty simple way of looking at it um now i know it's a friday it's a you guys are two hours ahead here so you're you're looking at the end of your work day uh you're working from home these days and that's a new thing uh with your job i guess you've gone into business for yourself can we talk about that yeah absolutely it's uh it's a bit complicated but um so I'm a social worker by trade in training, um, but I don't really practice clinically as much anymore. Um, so uh, I guess for the past seven or eight years, I used to work for the largest school board in Canada uh, here in Toronto, the Toronto District School Board, uh, up until two months ago where uh, I decided to, decided to resign. So when I was there, I used to have the uh, mental health and well-being portfolio. Uh, and then I got loaned out uh, onto comment to this third-party team uh, that really works to support all school boards in our province with their mental health and addiction strategies. Um, so our province would be like statewide uh, for, for Americans. But so I was seconded there for just about when the pandemic happened and uh, this past just before the summer started, uh, my school board kind of just said, hey, it's time to either return or resign um, because I was in a unionized environment and so forth. And so certain rules I got to follow and so forth. I can't, I, I couldn't get loaned out for more than three years, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I really had to, a lot of contemplation with my wife and those around me and decided uh, that uh, I'd bet on myself and, and resign and uh, continue with the province-wide group, but uh, as a self-employed mental health consultant so uh yes i do work from home virtually um and, and work to support all our school boards in ontario with their mental health and addiction strategy 
And would you say mental health and addiction strategy strategies, is that how they deploy or how they uh, manage their school social workers? Uh, yeah, that's definitely part of it. So when we talk about the mental health and addiction strategies, it really touches on like all aspects of education, right? So there's many connections, the curriculum that would deal with mental health and addiction. Uh, there are many aspects of health and physical education. And, uh, of course it also connects to what we, uh, many boards would call like support services. So your school social workers, your psychologists, speech and language pathologists, child and youth counselors, child and youth workers, and folks of that nature who help in different ways. So when we talk about strategy, we're really talking about like the system level um, way that boards envision their support and, and how they can best set up all the staff who are offering that support for success. You know, I, I am curious, how did you get into the mental health field? And I know, I know that you studied at Ryerson College and then uh, did your graduate work at University of Toronto. Um, what was your, for lack of a better term, your concentration? I know that most people don't realize there are many, many different areas of social work. Uh, how did you kind of find yourself kind of focused on the, well, the, both the mental health and the educational side of things? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so uh, Ryerson University is now called Toronto Metropolitan University, but uh, I, I started there um, in the early 2000s. And so when I was going through school, um, I, I, I kind of just, I want to be a vet. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to work with animals actually. Um, but I, uh, I wasn't great at math and I really sucked at science. Um, and you needed those things to move forward in that field. Yes, you do. Um, so yeah, that's what I was told. So, um, kind of like my interest and my aptitude didn't really connect on that one. And so it really made me kind of question and, and take a deeper look at like, Hey, what do I want to do with my life? Uh, so, you know, I took a look back at things and I, I saw really good marks in things like law, family studies, sociology, society. Um, and, and so it took me to a place where I was like, you know what, I, I think, uh, I want to help people. Uh, I think I want to be that guy, um, that I didn't have at school in terms of like that guidance counselor. Um, and so in some, some ways I followed my dad's footsteps cause he was also a social worker and, uh, I decided to apply for social work and, uh, it was the best academic decision I ever made. Um, because as a social worker, like you said, I worked specifically in education because I had those experiences and I wanted to kind of help other young people not have those experiences or have better experiences. Um, but when you graduate as a social worker, um, when you graduate from a social work program, you become a social worker. Uh, so it's a professional degree, whereas some other um, endeavors like psychology, for instance, I'm not trying to pick on them or anything, but like when you graduate with your psychology degree, you don't automatically become a psychologist. You have to do more schooling, right? So um, I found that to be quite interesting and that I'd be like work ready right after I graduated. But uh, of course, I ended up doing one more year to do my master's of social work at the University of Toronto and... Uh, kind of been carrying on since then. You know, you, you touched on something that I was going to get to here pretty quickly. Um, you're not a first-generation social worker, and you are uh, what I'll call an ethnic male in a field uh, where most social workers are female. Um, and I think anywhere else you'd be a square peg uh, in a very similar way that I'm a square peg in my field. Uh, I got several you know intersections, any one of which would make me uh, a bit of a minority uh, in the field of law enforcement. But Toronto is about as culturally diverse as a city can get. Um, can you talk a little bit about following your father's footsteps to some degree um, and maybe a little bit background on, on 
kind of where your family lineage is from. And I know, I know we talked about this and I'm, your name might give uh, throw people off a little bit, but um, can you just talk a little bit about kind of your family background and where your family came from and what it's like being um, not only an ethnic and, and or racial minority, but a male in a field, you know, dominated pretty much by, by women. Yeah, no, absolutely. You have it bang on. Um, that's like seven questions in one. So I'll try I know, and grab I'm sorry them one about at that. Time. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, yeah, no worries. But uh, I guess I'll start from the beginning, I guess, in some sense. So my family emigrated to Canada in the early 70s. I think it was 1971 uh, from Guyana in South America. So it was an interesting spot because uh, Guyana, uh, like culturally, has they're a colonized nation. Um, but culturally, they take a lot from the Caribbean. Uh, but geographically, they're not in the Caribbean. They're in South America. Um, so uh, a lot of Caribbeans wouldn't consider Guyanese as being Caribbean, and a lot of South Americans wouldn't consider Guyanese as being South American. Uh, and then you come to Canada, and it's kind of like, well, you're definitely not Canadian. <laughs> so, and, and then our descendants are from India, and, then, and so like the people who are directly from India nowadays wouldn't consider Guyanese people as Indian. So like you're in this like weird Bermuda triangle of like, who are we? <laughs> who am I? As if there and, weren't um, enough intersections with just who you are in, in Canada, right? That's correct. That's correct. So, um, yeah, you end up finding your way. And the one benefit, and I see this with my, my wife's family, my wife's family is from Pakistan. And so, um, the, the language barrier and language in general is huge in this regard, right? So, uh, as a colonized nation, my parents came to Canada speaking English. So, that made it a lot easier to navigate as part of, um, uh, a colonized nation that spoke English to be able to, to navigate in Canada by being able to speak English. And I see the difference in my wife's family who, who didn't have that English as well as my parents did when they first came and what that meant for, for their um, migration experience. But um, my parents uh, were both educators in their lives, both um, social justice activists. Um, my The reason why we came to Canada actually was primarily because my grandfather uh, was an outspoken social justice advocate. And so we, we, we had to kind of hightail it out of there <laughs> before things got worse. But uh, my, my dad uh, has this thirst for knowledge that still at his age is unquenched. Uh, and he was a, was a professor at the end of his career. And he continues to be a social justice advocate. And um, when he came to Canada, it was, uh, he kept studying. Uh, and he kept growing, even though he had a lot of background. Uh, and he ended up being a social worker. And he worked for the Human Rights Commission. He worked in the Ontario government for 30-something years uh, in doing social policy. And... Um, I remember going to, we have this thing here called Take Your Kids to Work Day. I think it's in grade 10 or maybe it's grade 11, but uh, it's sometime around November. And uh, I remember going to his job and finding it so incredibly boring. <laughs> it was so boring to me, right? It was just a lot of paperwork, a lot of meetings. Um, but it's not until, like, recently that I appreciate how much impact that a role like that has now that I find myself in, in this type of role where, you kind of have a huge scope of a province and, and leadership and influence is something that's, uh, uh, that's very impactful depending on what you're doing. So, um, I guess to answer one of your questions, that's kind of how my family found its way here. Um, and following my dad's footsteps kind of unintentionally. Um, and then realizing it is kind of what I was built to do, uh, to, to, to be a, to be a helper because, I know in Canada, at least, the term social worker and the history of social workers in Canada is not a great one. 
from child protection to uh, the way um, social workers uh, were involved um, in child protection or in education in residential schools, things like that. Um, it's kind of hard for me to call myself a social worker sometimes, but uh, I consider myself a helper. I try to help where I can, and uh, being in this in this type of position where we, we deal a lot with strategy and policy and things of that nature, I'm glad I can bring my perspective to, to the forefront. You know, you mentioned something that I had never even thought of, and I've never heard anybody suggest that social workers would ever be looked at, uh, looked upon negatively. But for my listeners who aren't familiar, um, I'm sure this went on in the U S but I know that just recently there's been kind of a reawakening and, um, uh, kind of a self, uh, what would what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, people kind of looking at oneself in the mirror, if, if a nation can do that, with regard to the residential schools that, um, you know, in the United States, people use the word uh, Native American or Indian or indigenous. In Canada, use the term First Nations. Um, and there were residential schools that basically tried to force assimilation, uh, force the First Nation children uh, to assimilate and teach them to be white. Um, and I just think that's really interesting that you you associated that. Is that something that that you have felt or have you picked on picked up on that from other people i I would say it's a bit of both um but it's a lot of our work uh whether you want to call it the reawakening or revitalization or just an understanding of our history right like going through school i i I never enjoyed history and geography but uh doing this work i I started becoming a bit of a a historian you know um you, you kind of got to know the history so before you, you know, they, you got to know your history before you're doomed to repeat it kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and so that's been uh, a lot of the, the movement in education is to understand uh, our colonial past, understand um, residential schools and the impact continuing legacy on indigenous uh, peoples in Canada uh, and around the world. And uh, th- that's something that uh, we start, we're starting to talk a lot more about in education, in the social services, um, and I think it's fundamental to the way that we offer support because I know in my, in, in my culture, in my family, a lot of the ways that when we're talking about something like mental health, when we're talking about helping someone with something, it's, it's not, it's, I can't say rarely, but it's not often a one-on-one type of relationship that helps people. Uh, it's more of that communal support, uh, that group support, that familial or, or um, uh, kind of community agency that we have that really helps people uh, navigate how they're feeling, what they're dealing with, and so forth. And so when we come from like a, a Eurocentric perspective, I think there's different things to learn from different people. And so uh, having kind of a, a monolithic approach to uh, the way we support young people in a very diverse place like Ontario, uh, I think is something we're we're trying to trouble a little bit and trying to bring in uh, varying perspectives as we move forward. You know, uh, I do want to touch just briefly uh, once again on kind of your ethnic background and your identity. I hadn't thought of this until mm-hmm. uh, you had mentioned that your wife's family is from Pakistan. Um, growing up uh, in Toronto, uh, a person uh, whose family emigrated from Guyana, uh, but whose lineage or uh, ancestry is from India, did you was there a particular community that you gravitated towards? I know with me, you know, my family was Jewish and, you know, our Judaism was very important to my parents so that their number one main circle of friends uh, were, were uh, a group of families from our from our synagogue. Uh, did you have a similar type of uh, connection to a, to a community growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for us, the, the the Guyanese community was starting to grow when we're, we're um, growing up. 
of course, I'm Muslim, so we have the, the Islamic, uh, our, our brothers and sisters from all over the GTA. Um, my grandfather was uh, a founder of one of our first mosques in the uh, in, in Toronto, uh, and probably one of the most recognizable ones. Um, and so we grew up in that kind of community, um, and, and we grew up in a, a fairly diverse, like you said, community. Um, you know, Toronto has people from all over the world, and so I uh, really grew up with a, a great perspective on a number of people. So I know, you know, when you had asked, like, do you find yourself as like a square peg in, in, in your work? Like in many ways, <clears throat> a lot of who I am is like the polar opposite of the the majority of people I work with. Um, and so I've, I've actually kind of grown, uh, how do I say this, kind of grown to find my, my way in this world. Um, yeah, I think and in this world of work, like I think, I think about our systems and sometimes the people within our systems, um, they can be really good sometimes at maintaining their power and stripping away what's, I guess, really unique about people um, and trying to make us conform to whatever the system thinks is better or easier. Um, and, and it pushes people out to the margins who, who don't fit into those molds and for whatever reason. Uh, and it makes it harder to be ourselves. So, you know, for me, uh, what I've kind of grown to, to find is the great strength in the differences that I bring uh, into the work that I do into my life. Um, so, like I said, in many ways, I'm the exact opposite of the majority of the people I work with and support. And they're like, I have to be honest that there's days when I think like, this doesn't make sense. This does, this isn't going to work or this doesn't work. Um, and then there's other days, which I remember a lot more viscerally where it's like, damn, I'm glad I was there to say that. I'm glad I was there to provide that insight to help this move along because, um, you know, if, even if we think of something like uh, male, male, male mental health, I'm the only male social worker on a team of about 50 who helps support provincial uh, or statewide group that's meant to support the mental health and addiction strategies of 72 school districts. So having my perspective shared at that level and at those tables who, you know, you can argue would support like half of the students who identify as male is incredibly important and invaluable. And, um, you know, as I'm saying that, uh, it, it reminds me and, and it, it actually humbles me. It scares me a little bit uh, about how important it is to, to have that voice and share that voice um, for all those people who share a lot of my identity or intersections. You know, talking about being all, all of your different intersections and what you bring uh, to your field seems to me almost like a perfect storm. I mean, you don't hear it as much. I, there, It seems, I, I mean, I'm old enough, I'm about to be 50 years old. I remember in the 90s, the ter- terms like affirmative action and diversity were and ebonics. The three words that you heard all the time when people talked about social mm-hmm. issues, you don't hear the word diversity too much anymore. But when you're talking about uh, a city like Toronto, and uh, the, the larger, you know, the, the province of Ontario, both extremely diverse culturally. And you're in a field where diversity is valued. I mean, let's face it, social work is much, I mean, I would say the vast majority of people who are in social work are people with progressive ideology who do value diversity. Seems to me like you have probably, you know, and I wouldn't doubt this at all, just given all of those intersections, the ability to market yourself and, you know, interviewing for jobs must have been, I don't want to say the word easy, but you had a lot lot to work with and a lot to offer in a field where what you have to offer is very much valued. Am I on the right track? 
Yeah, I think, like I said, later uh, later on in my career, which like I'm, I'm at at this point right now, I see that benefit. Uh, earlier on in my career, um, I kind of, like I was mentioning, I, I didn't feel that that was the case. Uh, I didn't feel like what I brought to the table uh, was considered valued or valuable. So uh, it's, I think now when you talked about like the reawakening or the awakening or the deeper understanding of, of truth and reconciliation for indigenous peoples or, or First Nations, uh, things of that nature, understanding of the impacts of colonialism, not just in the past, but the current day impacts. Um, I think with that understanding, uh, whether it be in social work, education or other fields, I think we're starting to understand those impacts a little bit more. Uh, and so someone like myself who brings a perspective um, uh, yeah, now now I feel like I, I can, uh, I feel that confidence within myself to say like, hey, have we thought about this um, and and realize that, oh my gosh, uh, I might be the only one who thinks that way uh, and understanding that that's actually super valuable as opposed to something to kind of push to the margin. You know, Salim, before we move on, I do want to talk, you are from Scarborough or you just live in Scarborough now? Where did you grow up? Born, raised... Born, raised, educated, still living, playing in Scarborough. Okay, now, is, yep. is Scarborough its own city with its own city government, city uh, police service, or, or is it a, is it considered a, a part of Toronto? I mean, how, what, is, like, what is that? So it used to be, so we're pretty much like the east third of Toronto. So uh, we're part of Toronto now. In the past, we were, it was like all separated out, and then they amalgamated all together under the Toronto banner, but... Uh, uh, of the rest of Toronto, I think, and of course I'm biased here, uh, I think Scarborough has maintained uh, a lot of its um, a culture, a lot of its history. Um, definitely the food and the people are still very unique to Scarborough, but yes, we are also still Torontonians. Okay, so you, you receive your uh, services from like Toronto Police Service and Tor- Toronto City Government? That's right. Okay. That's right. Now, now I actually hadn't heard of, uh, had not heard of Scarborough until I read a book um, you know, my wife is from St. Catharines, and I'm sure you've heard. Uh, I, I read the book called Invisible Darkness, and it was about Paul Bernardo and uh, Carla Homolka and the horrible things they did. Um, and before he, yeah. honestly, uh, before, unfortunately, he started killing and dismembering young women, he was known as the Scarborough Rapist before he had been identified, of course. That was probably 20, 20 plus years ago when I read that book, but I, I had never heard the word Scarborough uh, in that regard. But I want to move on. Um, educated style, yeah. uh, it's men's fashion geared towards, um, I guess, educators or people who, men who work in the educational field. How'd you get into the style business? And, you know, what, do you have any special training or experience with regard to things like style, fashion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to, to transition from Paul Bernardo into educated style, but we'll do our best. Yeah. Not the best seg, um, huh? Yeah, no, it's not the greatest, but I understand where you're coming from. Like, you know, we have this thing in Scarborough, like Scarborough to the world. We have folks like um, uh, The Weeknd, who's from Scarborough. We have uh, Jim Carrey and Mike Myers and, like, the Mike Myers in movies like Austin Powers, not the Mike Myers from Halloween. Um, But, uh, yeah, we try to focus on the positive because I think a lot of our community has been built off the negative uh, in within Toronto. And so like, uh, it's just good to see now that there are a lot of positive role models coming out of Scarborough. Um, but, uh, in terms of educated style, so 
When I was with the Toronto School Board, um, we were very close to the, to the Civic Centre, the, the head office, and so I, I'd go across the way to the Civic Centre sometimes uh, for a quiet spot to gather my thoughts, a quiet lunch, something like that. Um, and there was a charity that operated out of the lower level there in the Civic Centre uh, that was for women. Uh, it was called Dress Your Best Toronto. And uh, one day I, I brought some clothes to donate because they said they also took men's stuff. Uh, and I think it was a Tuesday, uh, and so I got there with my uh, trousers and a couple of jackets and stuff to donate, uh, and I saw a bunch of guys there trying on clothing. So I was kind of like, whoa, wait, this doesn't make sense, really. Like, I understand you take guys' clothing to donate, but like this is like a, a women's-only kind of thing. But they said, no, on Tuesdays it's open to men, and we do collect men's items. So, you know, I asked them what's up, um, and they told me kind of that's what it was. And once a week basically what would happen is they'd have a couple of stylists that would come in uh, and help guys entering the workforce, returning to the workforce, newcomers, and so forth. Uh, and so I fell in with that crew. Uh, they, they took me on just out of interest, and, and so I learned and trained under them for a couple of years. Um, and, and so, like, for me, it was when my second daughter was born, Inaya, uh, I had some time at home with her uh, and I had just taken on this mental health lead role that I mentioned to you. And uh, I started to deep dive a lot into men's style. Um, you, you know, I'm talking about like timeless style, not fashion. Fashion is kind of fleeting, trendy stuff, but like just like real solid men's style. And uh, I, I was looking for a way to kind of gain instant credibility um, because I was really dealing with some imposter syndrome. So uh, I, I'm a school-based social worker and I'm being kind of thrust into this system-wide role, the largest school board in Canada. I'm like, what am I doing here? What can I offer? How did that, how did this even happen? Um, so I'm dealing with that and I'm kind of like, maybe if I introduce myself to the world in a way that will kind of keep the haters at bay, that maybe that would be a good thing. And so I started deep diving into style uh, along with my training with uh, the stylists uh, at Dress Your Best Toronto. So I had gotten into the senior leadership role, uh, and I started finding that not, I not only projected a sense of confidence, but I started feeling more confident through my style. Uh, it kind of gave me that instant credibility uh, when you walk into the room. So, you know, I started to learn a lot more about style rules and, and all the little tricks of the trade and so forth um, to find my own style and, and gain my own knowledge and share my own uh, knowledge with folks through helping style some of the guys who came in on a Tuesday. And so... It was like the greatest training uh, training you could get as a stylist because you have such a limited amount of things to pull from. It's basically what people have donated and some organizations have donated, and you're trying to pull together maybe two, three great work workwear outfits for guys based on whatever's on the shelf. Uh, and so, like, if someone came in with a common size, like a 42 jacket, but you didn't really have a lot of 42s yet, really have to figure something out or you knew someone would, would really work out with a, a navy blue suit, but all you had was charcoal. Like, you really had to figure that out. And so it was a great challenge, but also um, really helped me learn uh, a lot on the fly. Um, so, so I decided to go, go, go with it on my own. Um, uh, I had to stop working with Dress Your Best Toronto because, of course, the pandemic hit. Uh, so I was looking for different ways to kind of keep that momentum going in different ways. So I started doing, like, online uh, consultations and stuff like that and got the website going. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess it kind of started there. And, and really what kind of gave me the idea of focusing in on, on guys in education is because I worked at the head office a lot, 
I see, I see guys come in for interviews and, and, and sometimes they're pretty ragged. Uh, and so like at the end of the day, your style won't help you get a job, but it can help you feel confident, project confidence. It can help you feel uh, and perform a little bit more. Um, so the intention was never, isn't, whenever we're working with guys who work in education uh, to increase their style for things like job interviews and stuff like that, it's not to help them get the job. It's to help them unlock that level of confidence or to unlock those skills that they have with inside of them uh, and, and introduce themselves to the world in a great way, uh, especially in those pressure-packed situations like job interviews. So that, that's a little bit of the origin story of educated style. I'm really, I'm really glad that you differentiated between style and fashion and that style is timeless and fashion is periodic or whatever the word is because I've noticed, and I have it here kind of next on my things to talk about, is I've noticed that on your Instagram page, and you and I, you know, we follow each other on Instagram, you looks like you post about once a mm-hmm. month, but you don't really post about actual clothing. Uh, it's cufflinks and tie pins and collar stays and beard products and shoe trees and, and, and things like that. Um, I find that very interesting. And by the way, thank you for the uh, complimentary uh, uh, brass collar stays you sent me not too long ago. I think I showed you that I... Uh, <laughs> I tagged you in my Instagram story the day that I wore those. I, I'm trying to remember what suit. I don't remember what suit I wore that day. It might have been. Was it the uh, the custom made Michael Strahan I had? Yeah, that's right. I um I'm planning on wearing that. We've got a world championship boxing match up here in, in uh, Albuquerque next Saturday. I'm going to wear that suit with. Uh, well, I was I was going to wear the pink shirt and the pink tie, but you know you and I talked about that, and we're gonna we're, we're going to work on that. But um, I guess <laughs> a, a couple a couple of things, you know I um. In my job, I from time to time, I sometimes I go through periods where I wear a suit more often than not. Um, and I used to work with one guy who who wore cufflinks. Uh, I never in my life have bought a shirt. I, I just get the cheap. I don't know, I don't want to call them cheap, but just you button your your cuffs. And I, I worked with a guy who wore cufflinks, and I thought to myself, that's awfully formal uh, for a detective. Um, g- just give me some quick some quick, thought, quick thoughts on cufflinks and where where they're where and when they're most commonly seen and used. So I think you're bang on. Uh, they are they are more in the formal realm. Uh, cufflinks uh, they're a little tough to kind of pull off when you're not wearing a jacket, in my opinion. Uh, and again, it's just one opinion doesn't mean that it's gospel truth. But um, yeah, cufflinks I, I think are, are best worn when you still have when you're wearing a jacket most of the time, uh, and in super formal situations like you wouldn't necessarily wear cufflinks without a tie. Um, uh, I think that's one of the things on cufflinks I'd say. So it, 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 some people it really fits their style. But to wear cufflinks, you gotta have like uh, a decent budget because you gotta have shirts with like a French cuff, uh, and those shirts are usually not well worn easily without a jacket on. So if you're gonna be taking your jacket off fairly consistently, I, I'd stay away from the uh, the cufflinks personally. Now, I also um, something that I'm probably the only person I work with who does not wear one of these for no particular reason. Um, tie pins. I, assuming that the purpose is to keep your tie perfectly straight and from moving, and why a person, why it's not okay for a tie to move, I don't know. My take on that is, in all honesty, the only people I've ever seen wear tie pins are military and law enforcement. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. you don't usually want to take fashion or style tips from people with buzz cuts, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it really depends on who the guy is, but I feel what you're saying. Yeah, it, it seems kind of uh, uniform-specific or, or uh, specific. But, uh, you know, I've seen it in many years. Like, I see a lot of guys 
uh, using tie pins. And I used to have a couple myself, and I, I never found them to be that easy to kind of keep uh, in place. Like, I've always found them to sl- slide up and down. Uh, I've seen guys where sometimes the tie pin is too long. It goes, it spans the whole width of the tie, and it looks awkward. Um, and, and it doesn't actually always do its job unless you have one with, like, a great good uh, clamp, but then sometimes it can damage the tie. So uh, I've always been a, a, a proponent of the tie stay, the, the kind of thing that goes behind your tie and keeps it kind of in the middle of your torso. Um, but I, I know I have a couple of people who work in um, like stunts uh, and, and work on film and television, and they use that often because it's invisible uh, and it kind of keeps things in place as they're doing stunts or as they're doing uh, any part of action within their, their role. So um, I've always been a, a bigger proponent of the tie stay as opposed to the tie pin. But uh, yeah, some tie pins, they, they play very well if you know how to use them. You know, I one thing I the, the thing that's most important to me with a tie is the ability to to and I don't know what it's called, but it's a little thing that's sewn into the back of the the front part of the fat part of the tie that you can tuck the back part into so that those two things stay together. And I'm actually I discovered I don't know how many years ago, but uh, you know I get I get my suits are all Michael Strahan, my shirts are all from Perry Ellis, my shoes are all Floorshine. And my ties are all from $20tie.com. and I actually go to the discount rack and get beautiful ties for twelve or thirteen bucks. But the greatest thing, one of the things yeah. I like about that website is I'm kind of an in-between height. I mean, I'm six feet tall, which is taller than average, but not necessarily big and tall. Um, but they offer all, mm. every one of their selections, you can get 60 or 63 inch. And it's perfect because I find that with 60 inch ties, it, the way it, depending on how I tie it and how fat I tie the knot, the back part may not be long enough to fit into the little thing that's sewn into the back. What's that called? Yeah, I don't even know. The little tie loop. <laughs> But whatever, it, a 63-inch tie, it, it, the both sides are long enough, and, and it's long enough in the back for me to tuck in. I do want to move on. What, what is your opinion? Do you think pleated slacks are making a comeback? I've seen them make a comeback, but I wouldn't say that they're kind of commonplace or the go-to for most guys. You know, when I was a kid, my dad always had me, when, when he bought me suits, he always bought me pleated because I've got very big, thick legs. And he told me, your legs are too big to wear, so you, ha- you have to wear pleated. And so I wore pleated for a long time, and yeah. honestly, I kept wearing them until it came to a point where my, my wife said, you need to stop wearing them because nobody's wearing them anymore. And what's funny is, you know, <laughs> I think I've come into my own. Um, you know, I just celebrated my 21st wedding anniversary. Um, yeah, I've come into my own fashion-wise, but I know that years ago, were it not for my wife, I would really dress like a dad. I mean, you would see me in, in jorts. With with calf high white you know athletic socks and white New Balance sneakers and a and a damn you know old navy t shirt with American sure. flag on it, I'm very glad for that. But I do want to move on MMA, MMA judging. Um, so before you go from there, uh, you know what? A lot of the referrals that I've got for educated style have come through wives or girlfriends for that very reason. Um, like all these things we talked about, it, it, a lot of it's just about the details, right? Many guys could have great physiques or, or, or what have you, but it gets lost in ill-fitting or uncomplimentary clothing, right? So, you know, a little trip to the tailor from time to time, the attention to the small details is really all I'm saying and all I help people with. Uh, all those little style details are really what can kind of uh, have minimum, have maximum impact, but minimum amounts of work, right? So like you talked about, the collar stays, the the uh, tie stay, all of those things. Um, even, even just hemming the bottom of your pants so you're, you, uh, you don't have like a pool of fabric at your ankles, 
especially for shorter guys, right? Like that just makes you look shorter, right? So like little things like that uh, can really help your style exponentially and, and they don't take a lot of effort. It's not surprising at all that you said that the, the, the wives and the girlfriends are ones that, that, that you know, that, that, that send their husbands there. Yeah. I, I mean, one last thing on fashion before we do move on. Um, it, it, you mentioned how things are cut and how things fall on your body, you know, uh, particular to your body size and shape. Um, you know, I, for many years, I am a very, I'm, I'm actually, you know, about to turn 50. I'm in the best shape of my life. Um, but right. e- up until very recently, I did not wear t-shirts. I just didn't like the way they fit. They did not complement my body. They didn't uh, show off whatever little uh, I had to show off in the way of my physique with big muscular arms or, or wide shoulders. You know, I also have wide hips. Uh, I carry too much fat in places where men don't usually want to carry fat. Um, but I found there are, you know, I found a couple of T-shirt makers that I that come through my Instagram feed that have what that's called a bicep cut shirt. And really, the only thing is, it's it's a typical T-shirt, but it's a little bit baggier in the chest area. And very tight around the arms. Yeah. And these are short sleeve t-shirts, and they're perfect. They work out for me. And I, I actually have just started wearing t-shirts fairly recently. But, um, you know, you and I met, of course, like I said at the beginning at the ABC convention. Uh, you're an MMA judge. Uh, do, you, mm-hmm. do you judge boxing as well? Uh, actually, I'm ABC trained uh, under Steve Weisfeld and Dwayne Ford. But uh, I haven't actually gotten into the judging of boxing yet. Like, for me, in my head, uh, I think being world class in in one sport as a judge uh, is is requires a certain amount of attention and is difficult enough that I don't want to split my focus. Um, you know, I've been MMA judging for about twelve years now, and I'm still growing and developing at that. So I didn't really want to mess with my judging brain, but um, I, I do have my training, but I haven't quite done it yet. You know, it's a funny for people who don't know the two main two names you just mentioned: Steve Weisfeld and Dwayne Ford. Uh, Steve Weisfeld actually did the most recent ABC training we had here in New Mexico. And he is one of the top, probably top five boxing judges in the world. If you watch a Canelo fight, if you watch Tyson Fury, if you watch a world championship fight, especially in a marquee division yeah. with a with a big name, uh, there's a good chance that Steve Weisfeld is one of the judges. Now, Dwayne Ford, of course, is probably pushing 80. Uh, he did most of his judging in the, in, in the 80s and 90s, I believe, but he's involved more in administration and, and very high up in the ABC. But um, how did you get into MMA judging? Yeah, yeah, and just to tag off of that, Steve, Steve, I worked with Steve last Saturday. He comes to Ontario every once in a while, and so like that. This is the guy. If you ever get a chance to uh, to connect with him at any of the conferences or trainings and stuff uh, in, in boxing judging right now, that, that can share the information, that can help you answer all of your questions you ever want to know about uh, box, judging in boxing, but. For me, as a judge in another discipline, in MMA, I've still learned a ton from him. And it's not so much about the sport necessarily, but I've learned a lot from him in terms of um, preparation specifically and how you prepare your, your body and mind for judging. And so no matter what sport you may judge in, uh, what combat sport you're uh, involved in, Steve is Steve's that guy. <laughs> you want to go to Steve. But uh, You know, it's yeah. interesting you mentioned getting your body and your mind ready for judging because uh, I, I too, uh, I've attended several. You know, I went to the, both the boxing judging and MMA judging trainings at the ABC conference this year. And I've gone to both of those actually uh, back in 2017, Jaron Valau, a fellow Canadian, yeah. uh, a former, yeah. former UFC uh, referee, uh, taught the MMA judging portion. And, um, you know, one thing that really requ- it requires your attention, your full yeah. undivided attention. And I have ADHD that uh, unfortunately I cannot, I'm un- unmedicated because all the medications they make for it give me bad side effects. 
but uh, just to show mm-hmm. how, just as a as a sign of how much how much attention I know it requires. Uh, I for many years I I have a, a spinner bike at home that I use. Uh, and I put it in front of the TV on football Sundays and I'll watch fights, not necessarily live, but, you know, you can watch any fight library you want. And I found myself with the bike in front of the TV during a boxing match or an MMA fight. And halfway through the round, I'm like, oh, OK, wait, who the hell is winning? I'm not even, you know, because I'm concentrating on my heart rate and my pedaling and and, uh, and, and things like that. Now, you also um, on, on your Instagram page, you are not only an MMA judge with the Ontario. Is it the Ontario Boxing Commission? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting you mentioned Jaron as well because uh, I got command certified under the godfather of MMA uh, officiating himself, Big John McCarthy, and, and Jaron Bilal as well. So they led that training uh, 12 plus years ago. So that's how I began my career. Uh, so yeah, the Ontario Athletic Commission is, is my home commission and where I uh, do most of my work as an MMA judge at this time. You also mentioned uh, something in your, in, your, in your bio or in your, your professional resume, a commission delegate. What is that? Yeah, so that's that's the boxing side. So you had asked about boxing, right? Um, so basically, in our jurisdiction, we have a commissioner. So the commissioner is like the top of the heap and the one who who rolls uh, with all the responsibility, who holds all the responsibility for uh, all the contests that, that happen in Ontario. And so some people refer to that as the executive officer. For us, we call it the commissioner. Uh, and so at boxing events, uh, the commissioner is de- well at both boxing and MMA. But I work uh, at boxing events as a delegate. Uh, the, de- the delegate basically. Uh, really kind of helps with the pre and post weigh-ins, uh, all the paperwork associated with that, the, the post-belt medicals uh, in collaboration with the doctor and helps uh, athletes in their corners get paid, all that kind of stuff. So um, it, it's kind of an administrative position, uh, and it's come after many years of, of kind of being an inspector and uh, timekeeper, scorekeeper, all of those different roles, and, and it kind of culminated in uh, being in this kind of uh, right-hand role with the commissioner boxing events i'm glad you explained that because one of the things i did uh you know for, for my listeners they've heard me talk about it and i i think you know you and i talked about it uh, when we met uh i was an inspector a deputy inspector here in new mexico since 2014 where basically you check the fighters in uh make sure they don't have anything they can't have caffeine they can't have any lotions with perfume or certain things they can't have in the locker mm-hmm. room we have to know the rules on hand wrapping and, and inspect the gloves and sign off on the gloves and the hand wraps and blah 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 yeah but a year ago, I was appointed yeah. by our governor to be a commissioner, and I'm learning that a lot of different states and different jurisdictions have different names for things. Like, you know, the inspector is pretty much universal. Here we call it a deputy inspector. What you just described as a commission delegate uh, would be an event coordinator here in New Mexico. And the person that you're calling the yeah. commissioner in Ontario is the executive director here in New Mexico, who's actually the only full-time state employee uh, who's involved in the athletic commission. And then there are people like me who are commissioners and there are four of us on the, on the board and we're the ones who uh, have to vote to approve event permits and promoters licenses and hear complaints. And, uh, I was just, uh, made the, the chairman of the rules committee. We haven't rewritten our rules and, or revised our rules in over 20 years. Um, so it's more uh, administrative stuff like that, but I'm glad you explained that to me. Now you said you recently traveled to California and you worked with, uh, who I just learned, again, I'm still kind of new to this end of things, this administrative side of things, uh, Andy Foster, who is universe, pretty universally recognized as the most influential man, influential person in combat sports. Uh, talk about going out to California and working with Andy. Yeah, that, that was kind of a, a surreal kind of bucket moment, bucket list moment for me in my career to date. Um, 
really uh, a huge kind of privilege being able to get with uh, the ability to work with the California State Athletic Commission. Uh, we're out there for, uh, it was at the Bellator 293, I believe. Um, but it, like you said it, right? Like and Andy uh, and the team there, um, and I'm not trying to blow smoke uh, or anything like that because I really believe this, but they're leading the world of combat sports in many ways, uh, from the pension program that they have for boxers and now MMA athletes as well, uh, the professional development that they lead for officials, not just in California but for North America, the volume of shows that they do and the data that they collect in that regard. Um, it's really helping make combat sports better, uh, and it doesn't hurt to have uh, such an influential um, and engaging leader like Andy. So uh, getting to work Bellator 293 in California, that was uh, uh, an incredible opportunity to, to be able to connect with some of those people you see on TV and they may have talked to through text or something like that, uh, getting to learn with them on the fly, getting to judge with them and uh, to now be able to call them colleagues uh, and still be in contact with them. It's an incredible privilege and, um, you know, maybe something we can run back in the future. It's funny you mentioned getting an opportunity to work with and interact with people that you've seen on television because I, I think you and I both had that experience, <clears throat> excuse me, at the ABC convention where there are literally people that, we saw people all week that, you know, there's there are certain boxing uh, referees whose names I didn't really know, but I'd seen them for years and years and years. I mean, uh, Lawrence Cole was there all week and I'd seen him, uh, you know, referee many fights. And uh, I mean, a bunch. I mean, Herd Dean was there and, and um, uh, oh, the English guy. I can't even think of his name right now. He he, he works everything. He's got Mark, a Goddard. Mark Goddard was there. I mean, it's uh, it is amazing. And it's funny because, the, you know that was my first interaction with Andy and we got to eat lunch with him one day. And for people who don't know, Andy's about six, two, um, fairly built, fairly stout, not, I, I'm not corn fed or anything, just a big guy and very fit bald head wears nothing but suits, beautiful suits. Uh, and it's from Georgia has, and has this deep, deep, deep Southern draw. And he is the most intense person. I, the guy has no chill. And I don't mean that in a bad way. He's just so intense and so into what he's doing and so knowledgeable, and so, man, you, when he walks in the room, you know he's in charge. No question. Yeah, he has an incredible presence. There's an incredible presence there that, uh, you know, kind of speaks to the leadership that he's had in combat sports and MMA uh, across the world and globally, and, and, you know, he may not, you know, accept that in face-to-face, but that, I believe that to be true, and uh, I think there's only more to come on that front for sure. Well, who knows where he's going to end up. But, you know, we, we were talking about boxing judging. I want to talk, uh, for my listeners, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. But we hear this before every, at, the, at, the, at least at the very beginning of every telecast, every UFC and Bellator telecast. For my listeners, what is the judging criteria for mixed martial arts? So, yeah, so we primarily look at uh, effective striking and effective grappling. Right. Um, there are other parts of the criteria where we look at like fighting area control or effective aggressiveness. Um, but primarily when we're talking about judging an MMA fight, we're talking about effective striking and effective grappling. Now, to take it a step further, um, something that we did not see uh, probably for the first 20 years of mixed martial arts. Now, we're in year 30 now. Uh, we didn't see 10-8 rounds. In boxing, it's easy. You score a knockdown, you're pretty much won that round 10-8, unless you get knocked down yourself. And, of course, it goes back to 10-10, and you score the rest of the round. Uh, the 10-8, give, us the, give me the, uh, the criteria for a 10-8 round. Yeah, so uh, the 10-8 in MMA, you know, we're really looking at uh, judging, the evolution of judging within the sport, right? Like you said, it's like been just about 30 years, and 
I think it was even, I'm trying to remember exactly which event it was. I think it was like UFC 7.5 or something. The event before had been, had a, had a lot of like time limit draws or something of that nature. And they decided that the next event they'd have judges. And, uh, if you pull it up somewhere online, there's pictures of, of the judges. Uh, I think they're, they're kind of all fitted seated beside each other and they had like these paper plate looking kind of things and they would just kind of write the name of who they thought won uh, and they, they kind of hold it up. I remember uh, so that. We've evolved. <laughs> we've evolved since then a little bit, right? And so the 10-8 would be a part of that evolution um, where we're really looking at what we've called the 3Ds of dominance, duration, and damage. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a couple nuances there that, that we could kind of go into in terms of like damage impact. It's kind of just terminology, but we're really talking about damage. Um, and, and then duration and dominance being a key part, key components of that. Uh, like, were you looking to kind of like define it or just kind of mention them? I just wanted to kind of mention it because I, I want to move into this next thing. I do want to add just one little thing. And because I, you know, I take, I'm someone who takes copious notes and, I, I still have the notes uh, at, at my house that I took during the MMA judging uh, training that we were at. Um, for the 10-8 yeah, round, sure. uh, there's obviously, like you mentioned, effective striking, effective grappling, and effective cage control. But for a 10-8 round, they add when you win by a large margin and you have at least two out of the three, damage, domination, and duration. Shall be, not can be, but shall be a 10-8 round. I bring this up because um, last week's UFC event in Abu Dhabi, which was very interesting, uh, the co-main event comes out Chimaev and, and um, Kamaru Usman. Uh, the first round, um, have you had an opportunity to see that yet? I know we talked about it. You were going to... Yeah, I did see it. I did. Okay, so for our listeners, you had basically uh, a few striking exchanges at the beginning. Chimaev got a takedown, uh, kind of held Usman on the ground uh, in the area of the, of, of the edge of the cage uh, and had top position for about four and a half minutes. Uh, out of a five-minute round, landed some strikes, some good strikes to the head, and had a few very solid submission attempts with uh, what looked more like a face crank than the neck crank, but, you know, attempts at a rear naked choke. So setting the stage for the listeners, was there any doubt in your mind at the end of that round what the score was? So for me, uh, I I don't like to comment on events or fights that I wasn't live for, but uh, I I can share my thoughts based on like the view off of the broadcast uh, perhaps. And, and I did score it at 10, eight from what I saw um, according to the criteria that we judge from. Right. So uh, if you look at domination, for instance, uh, of the positions in the round, right. So domination. So we have to remember domination includes the lack of offense uh, or the opponent continually having to defend. Right. So um, for almost the entire round, which would be duration, um, we have domination by Chimaev. We have almost the entire round, sorry, almost the entire round, which is duration. Uh, domination from, he had his back, he had his hook in, I think, uh, like 30 seconds in, and then he had pretty much his back for the rest of the round. Uh, throwing strikes, uh, attempting submissions uh, with enough damage for me to, to consider it a 10-8. Um, and, and I think, you know, for a round like this, it's a good opportunity to, to kind of look at the criteria. So I appreciate that opportunity. Um, people may have been focusing in only on damage. Uh, so I can understand where if you focus only on damage, that you might be like, hey, how is that a 10-8? Uh, 
but there were other aspects of that round, as I mentioned, in terms of the duration and the domination of the positions, the striking and the submission attempts that Shemaev um, engaged in that made it a 10 8. So um, I, I think I haven't seen the stats, um, but if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say that Shemaev had significantly more than Usman, if any, in terms of strikes. Um, you know, MMA is an offensive sport, and this is a fight. So uh, Usman brought next to, no- next to nothing in terms of offense, um, and, and Shoaev had the dominant position. Like, there's a difference be- between being in guard and have someone having someone back-mounted or, or having their back. That's a significantly dominant, more dominant position than being in someone's guard to have their back. Um, he had just enough damage for me to, to go 10-8, and I will say that all three judges in that round went 10-8, uh, and you don't always see that with 10 eights. Um, so, you know, not, not being there live, although it's on my bucket list, uh, I, I trust my colleagues uh, who submitted those cards. Um, and not just because they I agreed with them or they agreed with me, uh, but because it was the right score to, to give based on the criteria that we have. And, and I should go back and apologize to you for framing the question the way I did, because I know that it's not... Um it's not. It's not uh, something you don't do to to comment on the scores of events you didn't uh, witness live and, and to call into question or to ask if you agreed with judges. I, I really should have framed that that differently. But the reason I bring it up is because uh, while I'm not a certified judge, uh, nor have I ever been, I've been to p- plenty of trainings. I am a commissioner. I'm I'm on the rules committee. I know all the rules. I know the scoring mm-hmm. criteria. What was interesting about as soon as that round ended, I knew, I knew it should be a 10-8 round based on the scoring criteria. He won by a large margin using effective striking, grappling, and cage control. And he had at least two out of the three. He had, he had domination and duration. Now, I say that. I say I leave out damage at first for the following reason. Duration, he had, he had top position for four and a half out of five minutes. Um, so he, he dominated that position and he did it for the pretty much the duration of the round where I think that a lot of people who are not as intimately familiar with the scoring criteria might have a question or, or be hesitant to, to see it as a 10, eight round is because the lack of, of damaging strikes, you know, when you have somebody's back and you're striking, uh, striking at their head or their body, it's kind of hard to see whether or not there's any damage. You know, if, if you can, if you're dominating the striking on your feet or if you do have somebody mounted, you can see their head snapping back from the standing position when they get hit. You can see blows a lot better when somebody's lying on their back, and you can see their face start to swell up, or you can see the cuts. Um, and I just thought it was something that was uh, – I listened to the the uh, Weighing In podcast with Big John McCarthy and Josh Thompson. comes out usually on Sunday mornings and Thursday, Thursday afternoons, and they spent a lot of time talking about the scoring on that. And John, who, as I mentioned to you, I would love – I would kill to get him on my podcast – he pretty much wrote the unified rules, and he's been involved in not only writing, uh, you know, 25 years ago when they started to write unified rules, but on the revisions uh, over the last 25 years. And he, and he gave a really good breakdown. I just wanted to make sure and touch on that. We're kind of running out of time. But, um, you know, I listened sure. to you right after I met you. I listened to you on a podcast you did where you talked a lot about a basketball team you follow uh, in Scarborough, which is some sort of semi-pro team. What sports do you watch and follow besides uh, combat sports? Are you a Leafs fan? Do you watch hockey? Uh, not so much in the hockey realm, but I, I am an Eagles fan for football. And the Scarborough Shooting Stars, that's our summer league team, and, and of course, got to follow the Raptors. Now, just go a little bit further, summer league. What, what, is that affiliated? Is that NBA affiliated or is it affiliated with the, with the G League? or What is that? 
So the, there's a league in Canada called the CEBL, Canadian Elite Basketball League. So it's, it's across Canada, and um, a lot of the higher-level players in that league do go to places like the Summer League for NBA and things of that nature. But uh, it happens in the summer. It's kind of like a transient Summer League. So sometimes uh, you have a fairly set roster, and people would leave to go play in the Summer League, and then they'd come back, or they leave to go play in Europe, and then maybe they don't come back, or, or they finish playing in Europe, and then they come back halfway through the Summer League season. So uh, it's a great opportunity for Canadian players to, to really get out there and showcase their talents. All uh, There's rules for it in terms of having the, a certain number of Canadian players on your team, and um, import players, they, they cap at a certain um, amount. So it's, it's really showcasing Canadian basketball and it's incredible to have a team that's not like toronto based but scarborough specific well all hail scarborough right hey <laughs> um we are just about towards the end salim do you want to plug your line or your your pages uh, just for my listeners where can they find educated style the uh, website instagram facebook all that good stuff yeah, sure. Uh, you can find me at uh, educatedstyle.ca because we're based in Canada, but uh, work on things like Zoom across North America. Uh, and of course, you can find me on Instagram at educatedstyle. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my guest has been uh, Salim Hanif, uh, my friend and colleague. I'm proud to call him a friend and a colleague. Uh, and uh, by the way, are you going to be, I'm going to the World Boxing Association convention in Orlando in December. Are you going to be there? Maybe we can work that out. I haven't uh, planned on it, but perhaps. Good, good deal. Whenever it is the next time I see you, I look forward to it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I really, we went over, but we talked about all of the things that I wanted to talk about. And Salim, you're a very easy interview. Uh, thank you very much, for, very much for being on my show. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Square Peg Podcast. Remember, we don't do seasons anymore. Uh, I give you one episode a month, usually the second Tuesday or Wednesday uh, of each month. And I really thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Have a good week.